0: evil. Google is evil. Google is evil.
1: Google is evil. Google is, evil. Google is, evil. Google is Welcome to Michael and us. I'm Will Sloan here as always with. Luke Savage, welcome back, everyone. Uh the two of us are recording in person for the first time in well, how long has it been? Ten days, two weeks.
0: Not about that. A couple of wounded warriors here again. I know that's become a recurring theme on the podcast.
1: Both of us are are exhausted and uh and wounded from our uh our respective travails. In my case, trying to take a, a giant project to the finish. And and in Will's case, uh spending a week in Tuscany. Yes. <laughs>
0: <laughs> Terrible. Although uh Listen, folks, I will say, will say I feel very thrown out of whack by experiencing the worst jet lag of my life Had a horrible flight. You know, should I should I even do this riff or or is it just going to be sounding like first world problems talking about how uncomfortable I was in my economy class seat, how painful it was that the person next to me, I was in the middle, folks, Okay, nowhere to lean. Nowhere to stretch my legs to, okay? That's that's how much I have suffered. And then imagine this. I know that this is really painful, but imagine I'm sitting here just trying to watch my little movies on my little screen, trying to pass the time. Person on my right, they're asleep on their screen. What's on their screen? The little map showing the plane and where the plane's progress is for the whole flight. Now, what do I want to do? I want to keep my eye focused on the movie. And then when the movie's over, look at the map and be like, look at that. Look at how far we've traveled, but no, I can't do that because in the corner of my eye, I'm always seeing "fuck," the plane is still over Iceland. Ah, uh, can it just go a little further? Uh, can I go a little bit? So yeah, that that's the the pain that I was going through. You know, not a lot of sleep the night before, just jet lagged very tired totally unplugged as well from what's happening in the world so i'm kind of hoping luke here can help me with that let me know i assume all the problems are fixed
1: you ever notice how uh, the plane on the map is uh, is not to scale it's way too big so the people at the back of the plane are in iceland and somehow the people in the front of the plane are, are over the north atlantic you ever think about that i do folks and, and
0: you know i was i was pretty excited because it looked to me like we were finally we'd finally crossed the coast of labrador but then i look out the window and it's like it's still ocean it's still ocean what What's going
1: on? Well, I was going to say that uh, venting about uh, the discomfort you experienced on your flight after a nice vacation is not a riff suitable for this show. Because, you know, people don't want to hear that. And uh, it is a stupid thing to complain about. The great thing is, because you preempted all of that by asking whether it was worth doing the riff at all, uh, I don't know, we have uh, plausible deniability. Was it irony? Was it not irony? Uh, Well, let's just move on from that, shall we? So what do you want to talk about? Well, I feel like it's been a while since we've discussed uh, an inane Twitter thread on this show. Oh, hit and me. There was Let's one, go. There was one yesterday that definitely caught my eye. It caught my eye, and then I wasn't going to talk about it because I thought, well, you know, is this a joke? I mean, it seems so dumb that it it has to be. It has to be a joke. And I'm pretty convinced based on the bylines of this person that it is absolutely uh, that is absolutely not a joke. So I have no idea who this guy is, except that he's some kind of a uh, you know conservative writer, and he has this read from yesterday, The Physiognomy Theory of Revolutionary History. I have a theory that any five-year-old can be given a better understanding of the history of revolutions than your average college student, and all you have to do is show them pictures. So before we get into the content of this, I like how right off the top uh, he's, he's preempting what he's going to say by being like, uh, yeah, this is a child's argument. Um, <laughs> so let's continue. You can show a child pictures of the leaders of each side in a revolutionary conflict, and anyone who's raised on Disney and Mother Goose will be able to tell who the good guys are and who the bad guys are. For the rest of his education, teachers will try to mislead him. So then uh, the rest of Thread is kind of the, uh, you know, him showing us the rough work, I guess. The careful scholarship that he's done um, to to prove this theory. And it consists of pictures, or I say pictures, I mean they're mostly paintings of uh, various monarchists and then revolutionaries and the point is to show that, you know, the revolutionaries are ugly and the, and the monarchists are handsome, I guess. Well,
0: any five year old would look at the Disney Robin you know the animated one with the with the fox and the lion and all that shit and they would see that King John is dressed very regally, and Robin Hood is dressed, you know, kind of like a peasant. But any five-year-old would also tell you that Robin Hood's the hero of that. So it doesn't even work as a child's <laughs> argument. Sorry. It doesn't even work as like a Disney—even <laughs> Disney doesn't say that. Because people are always rooting for the underdog. And the underdog doesn't dress in, you know, the king's final.
1: Well, I don't know, Will. You haven't heard his analysis yet. Uh, he says, let's start with the English Civil War. Here we have Prince Rupert, Charles I— the death death mask of Oliver Cromwell and John Pym show a child these pictures and ask who they think the good guys are and the child will say the more handsome royalist his instincts right. are so, wrong so if there so, are no, if
0: there's no context <laughs> it's, it's, behind the pictures <laughs> if you're saying okay well here's here's a nice robe and here's a piece of rag what do you what do you think just, is better well just, okay the robe looks better than the rag but there's no context for like how did the person get the robe I'm, why is the other person wearing the
1: rag I love that as just a, a, as, as like something a normal parent would do you know good parenting to one is like you go over to your toddler and you have a picture of uh charles the first you know a pa- an old painting of charles the first and then oliver cromwell's death mask and you're like look how hot charles the first was okay this guy oliver cromwell look look how ugly his death mask was right right look how ugly he was just waving the death mask in his face anyway he carries this on with uh the french revolution and he says the leaders of the revolutionary side all look disgusting from the pockmarked little freak rob Spear, to marat to danton uggos exclamation mark so again just further to the idea that this is a child's argument he's using the word uggos
0: i mean the royal family are beautiful though like consistently just (laughs) handsome like perfectly symmetrical faces
1: great hairlines on all of them (laughs) this is perhaps the first hint that this you know i was i was kind of with him up to this point but i'm starting to think this isn't really like methodologically or empirically sound as an exercise because he's got paintings throughout most of it then for some reason the the likeness of rob spear he has i mean I don't know what this is. It looks like a sort of cheaply made, like Rob Spear action figure or something. But this is not what Rob Spear looks like in any of the paintings that you see of him. Like Rob Spear looks like a, you know, like pretty little guy wearing a powdered wig, he's always got rosy cheeks.
0: Well, you know, I've got some paintings here, uh, quite a few paintings, in fact, of another revolutionary, uh, a carpenter's son, in fact, who wore the the rags of peasants, a man named Jesus Christ. And I think, actually, he looks quite beautiful in most of these paintings.
1: Incidentally, uh, he mentions uh, Danton. Have you ever seen the, uh, the movie where Depardieu plays Danton? No,
0: I haven't, actually.
1: <laughs> well, you know, I've only seen it once, and I could be misremembering. But uh, I did not think it was very good at the time uh the whole movie it like the whole the whole conflict in it is supposed to be between uh Danton and Rob Speer, and Rob Speer is sort of portrayed as this kind of tragic ideologue you know at the end when uh Danton is beheaded, you know the last shot of the movie is Rob spear yeah spoil, spoiler uh Danton dies and the last shot of the movie then is rob spear sort of saying like what have i done and then the curtain falls or something but then from what i remember you know i i set out to watch it because i was excited just like oh there's a movie set during the radical phase of the french revolution i can't wait to immerse myself in that world and from what i remember there wasn't a lot of revolutionary politics it's just Depardieu is danton like drunkenly arguing with people in rooms but you're supposed to find him like rakishly charming sounds good to me you i mean, mean i don't know i don't know what the problem is <laughs> we should do for the podcast. I, though, I, I do find him rakishly charming. <laughs> it's great that they cast Depardieu as Dan Tom because later he famously left France, to, you know, left Republican France to move to uh, Putin's Russia because a kind of fakely radical, moderate center-left government under Francois Hollande uh, was raising income taxes.
0: It's funny Gerard Depardieu should come up now because I actually just read his book when I was in Europe, uh, <laughs> His his autobiography called Innocent. <laughs> which I highly recommend. It is just the the ramblings of a madman. I'll, maybe I'll bring it on a future episode and read some choice cuts from it.
1: So look, the thread continues. We go through various other, you know, we go through 1848. We go through the, I don't know, royalist rebels during the French Revolution. We then get to sort of, uh, you know, the American Civil War, which he says was not a revolution, which probably tells us something about uh, how he sees it. Various pictures of, uh, of some Confederate generals. Um, you get the idea. We move on to, pictures of Trotsky uh, next to the Tsar. This
0: sounds in the lineage of, you know, the popular conservative idea that, you know, liberals and progressives or whatever are always trying to, like, destroy beauty in some way. It's like that Tom Wolfe book from Bauhaus to Our House, where he's writing about how all these pointy-headed academics gave up the beautiful heritage of wonderful Renaissance architecture in favor of, you know, coldly Soviet inspired... uh, Housing uh, uh, allegedly for the social good. And, you know, just just part of a broader liberal conspiracy to de- degrade aesthetics. Oh, well, you know, sorry, I say Tom Wolfe, but here's a better example. Uh, Hitler, how he would often talk about how, you know, there was like degradation in the arts and we need to get back to like the classical arts, that kind of thing. Not like this, like Picasso bullshit. Like you see on Twitter too, like, you know, there's a particular kind of conservative Twitter guy who's like the Greek statue guy, you know, the architecture <laughs> conservative guy guy
1: well that's why this seems like a bit of a throwback to me because i think we've moved on like in the in the age of maga we've moved on from the greek statue guy to like the, the ones that are complaining about the fact that, you know, Marxism has castrated Buzz Lightyear or whatever. At least this guy's doing like the old world monarchist uh, conservative thing. But I don't know. Yeah, you scroll through enough of this and, you know, I guess we shouldn't be kink shaming on this uh, podcast, but it kind of just seems like he's a little too into like paintings of Clemens von Met- Metternich and stuff <laughs> like that. I suppose, uh, you know, scrolling through this again, there's maybe a 0.5% chance this is a very self-aware, high-level bit, Uh, but based on my uh, various investigations— uh, I don't think so, and i mean i do I do think that conservatism has kind of an intellectual version of this argument because fundamentally i mean i don't know since the French Revolution anyway what is the what is the core idea of conservatism? I go back again and again to Corey Robbins thesis of conservatism, which changed uh, how I thought about it quite a lot back when I studied political science, I was immersed in a kind of a sub branch uh, called political sociology, and you know I learned to think about ideology in a particular kind of way you know you can kind of uh, taxonomize various ideologies at various stages based on certain value systems and things like that, certain commitments, moral, ethical, and otherwise certain ideas of uh, the individual community, whatever. And uh, to some extent, I think uh, that's still applicable. But Corey Robbins' thesis, uh, at least as far as conservatism is concerned, I think is much better in explaining, it's much more effective in explaining, how is it that there can be this one thing since 1789, roughly speaking, that has has had so many different incarnations and has so many different aesthetics attached to it, has in the present day been completely obsessed with the market, at various other times uh, was very critical of the market, etc. And what he argues is at the center of all of it, uh, there really is just kind of one idea, which is a belief in hierarchy and in a hierarchy that is rooted in some way in the natural order. And so, you know, within that, I mean, there really is a belief that, you know, if you look at a, I don't know, degenerated dynasty like the Habsburgs or something in, you know, I don't know, the early 19th century, you know, you're supposed to believe that their status is some sort of extension of, again, an organic natural order. You know, they're not there because, you know, human created institutions are hierarchical. They're there because uh, they're more excellent, you know, and in the case of this thread. You know, they're, they're, they're more beautiful. Look at this painting of Klauswitz in his dress uniform. Further, have you seen
0: these John McNaughton paintings of Trump? I mean...
1: Well, that, I think, is a perfect segue into our film for this week, because the aesthetic of those paintings, which, if you don't know what Will's talking about, Google John McNaughton paintings right now, because uh, he has a website, incidentally, called McNaughton Fine Art... Uh, which is pretty funny. This one of uh, Trump holding a spyglass to Robert Mueller on the floor of Congress <laughs> is pretty good. I'm fond of this one with uh, all the ex-presidents.
0: Lining up to suck him off? No, no, wait, that's not what's in the phone. <laughs> there,
1: there's this one of uh, of Donald Trump wearing what looks like an ICE uniform, and then there's, uh, in the background, you know, the Democrats, and they're holding an EU flag, a China flag, and a Mexican flag, and they're oh, stamping shame. on the American flag. Oh, shame. In the background, there's a bunch of legals coming across the border. But these paintings are obviously uh, hideous, and you know, p- they're reactionary crap, it goes without saying. But the aesthetic of them, I mean, God, look at this one. This is Trump as Was- uh, Washington crossing the Delaware, but it's uh, the swamp. I don't think there's anything that captures the aesthetic and the sensibilities of MAGA better than these paintings. The Incredible burlesque kitschiness combined with just absolute and utter self seriousness. Nobody better. uh, Nobody better, uh, perhaps, than uh, our subject on today's show. I'm talking, of course, about uh, Alex Jones. We watched uh, the 2022 film Alex's War, which is obviously a documentary about Jones. It doesn't really have any uh, commentary or anything like that. There's no editorializing. It's in the vein of other documentaries we've watched. There was that one, The Swamp, which had had uh all the Matt Gates stuff in it. I can't remember the number of the episode, but that was uh, Enemy at the Gates.
0: You're very pleased with that episode title, aren't
1: you? I thought it was pretty good. Yeah get me roger stone was another one i think but basically it's this style of documentary where you know the camera crews are just following jones around there's a lot of sort of behind the scenes stuff uh, at InfoWars hq and there's of course a lot of footage you know the framing device for the whole movie is really january 6th and the events uh, in and around that and the kind of stop the steel rallies etc
0: i'm alex jones the story you're about to see is truth this is reality truth. truth is stranger than fiction most banned, most demonized media person in the world. Alex Jones is a fake. He's a performance artist. I'm perceived as a clown, a nut, a maniac.
1: On his website, Infowars, he touts... Aaron Noya
0: born. The sickest, most offensive theories.
1: Alex Jones claims that 9-11 and the Oklahoma City bombings were inside jobs.
0: Don't you stand for America, sir? He said, me and Hillary are demons. <laughs> Ain't that something... In hell! I met him back in 1990s. I knew right away he was going to be a star. How's my hair look? I saw all these conspiracy terrorists that were talking about the New World Order. And I thought, that's what I'll do. Get it, Alex. <laughs> Death to
1: the New World Order! It was that attack on the humanity that I saw early on that I really wanted to wage war on. You're
0: lying to the public. It's disgusting. Once you taste that, there's no going back
1: so this is a type of documentary that I think I'm predisposed to like. I think in uh, present day documentaries, uh, especially, there can be a lot of editorializing. There can be a lot of kind of I don't know didacticism, and it's not always bad. Of course, there are uh, documentaries with a strong editorial perspective that are that are great films. But I just like this style of documentary, particularly when dealing with a, a reactionary subject. I think it can be very effective to just you know show not tell.
0: Well, I definitely went into this one with a bit of a chip on my shoulder. I have to admit the. Director- is Alex Lee Moyer who made a documentary a couple of years ago that I actually kind of liked called TFW No GF which was about incel culture that kind of had a mixed reception you know a lot of why are we profiling these people that kind of thing when it was really just a documentary about guys in like the rust belt I mean I mean when it came out I definitely thought that it provided a service in just showing you the world that a lot of these people came from and the headspace that a lot of them are in and creating a more nuanced picture of who some of these people are. And I thought that was useful and productive. I, I don't really feel the same way about Alex Jones. Luke, I know you find Alex Jones very entertaining. Uh, I don't care for Alex Jones generally. And I was trying
1: to- Well, fi- I find him entertaining, but the thing is like, I really think he's got a lot of important stuff to say. And I agree with his politics. That's more, it's more <laughs> that.
0: Uh, I was trying to figure out like, why don't I find Alex Jones all that compelling? Because I mean, you look at him, you got a ranting, crazy man who says all this kooky stuff. 10% of it has something interesting going on. And 90% of it is the rantings of a madman. See,
1: I would, I would. And, oh, wait, flip...
0: sorry. 80% is <laughs> rantings of a madman. Then 10%, 20%, maybe 30% is ads for his uh, supplements and his uh, virility sauces and this, this, stuff like this, that. See, <laughs>
1: this is, I mean, I think this is uh, point one of disagreement between us because I think that those ratios are, are all wrong. Wow. It's not about what's interesting. Because you know none of it is interesting at the level of content. It's just you know you strip away the artifice, and most of it is just like bog standard right wing politics with you know conspiracism attached. To it. although I think you know he is a bit of an innovator in that respect, the fusion of a sort of mega church or like televangelist shtick, or rather radio evangelist shtick, and a Rush Limbaugh and a sort of politically free floating conspiracy culture, and then you know more recently a kind of big R Republican shtick because he's you know been very uh, heavily aligned with. Trump. I mean I think he is kind of an innovator in that genre. But again, it's not about uh what's interesting. It's about the fact of him as an entertainer. I mean he goes on for like three hours a day, six days a week, something like that. And he just always has this explosive insanity, and he's able to maintain the pace and keep up the rhythm in a in a way that I think uh absolutely no one else is. I feel like most people experience Alex Jones in the form of like, yeah, these weirdo clips that leak where he's talking about frogs and how fluoride is. Turning the frogs gay, and you know all, all the all the classic Jones things that that leak. But I don't think you get the full effect unless you actually sit through one of these shows where it's just three straight hours of him going off with all the papers in front of him, taking calls from people where, you know, someone will call in. And it's clearly just uh, some like senior in rural Texas. And they start by complaining about George Soros and Bill Gates and then uh, an Agenda 21. And then the evidence is that their computer keeps downloading like the Microsoft update and is trying (laughs) to force them to get Windows 10. Which is part of the globalist agenda. (laughs) As performance art, I think it can be incredibly captivating. And I think the existence of Alex Jones uh, and Alex Jones as a phenomenon does raise interesting questions. But just at the level of performance art, I think I find it more interesting than you do. I think
0: ultimately my problem is there's not enough tension between who he is and what he claims to be. In a lot of conservative figures who I find funny, there's often a disconnect there. In fact, in a lot of just figures in general who I find funny, there's that disconnect. You know, Donald Trump, this guy who claims to come from New York society, this guy who claims to be, you know, the billionaire of billionaires, the classiest of the classy, he can go, Donald Trump could go to the New York Opera, he could uh, go to any fundraising dinner he wanted to, and they would accept him there, and he could hobnob with anyone he wanted to, and he's Donald Trump. And he, he's he's a boob and an idiot, and and he's ridiculous and he talks the way he talks and it was funny to see him in the Republican primaries in 2016 you know he's got the suit on he's got the tie except for the way he talks and the way he talks is just completely flustering everyone Um, you know it's a bit like you know Groucho Marx becomes the emperor of Fredonia you know you got the finery you got the soldiers you got the dignitaries Groucho's got the suit on he's got the tie on and then he starts you know calling people fat and he starts calling
1: people this or that I was just just thinking about that movie last night about how we should do it on the show which did we maybe do that way back in, i don't like, think 2017 <laughs> or something
0: no i don't think we ever did do that we should do it
1: we're overdue for some marx brothers stuff on michael and us uh but you know in
0: duck soup it's like margaret dumont says you know she welcomes them and she says you know here's your job and he says well that covers a lot of ground say you cover a lot of ground too you better beat it i hear they're going to tear you down and build an office building in your place and then she just has to keep talking you know because like the rules are in place uh, the rules and the decorum are in place and i find it very funny with a lot of these right-wing guys because they exist in that context they're ridiculous within this context that's supposed to be dignified now alex right, Jones, yeah, the
1: ridiculousness occupies kind of like it's still it's it's happening within the confines of like an institutional artifice that makes it funny
0: yes Alex Jones is a truly independent figure. Like if you tell me there's a guy with a public access show or an internet streaming show or his own podcast, he just rants and raves about the globalist conspiracy. That's not all that funny to me. I'd say, well, of course there is.
1: Right, but that that I feel like that is not you're not making your point very strongly because Alex Jones isn't just some guy with that. Yeah. He's like He's like the guy. He's uh-huh. he's helped invent a lot of the tropes that we associate with it, or at least you know helped kind of mainstream and popularize them. I think Alex Jones, you know, you know, as somebody again, I don't understand this because as someone who's interested in Donald Trump and who finds Donald Trump funny, Alex Jones is one of the people who helped create the ground for Trump. He's one of the people who helped lay the groundwork for the the kind of aesthetic and sensibility you know within parts of the Republican base that makes something like Donald Trump possible and. Definitely, that makes something like QAnon possible.
0: Well, my taste runs a little bit more towards Andrew Dice Clay, but yes, <laughs> y- your point is taken. I mean, I enjoyed some of those clips you were showing me before we were recorded of Alex Jones <laughs> heckling like, people, Hectoring yeah. Marco Rubio at a press conference. I think it's important for them not to comply with any efforts to sort of go after freedom of expression. What about expression? the Democrats purging conservatives? The,
1: the um... She's
0: not answering. Just the Republicans are acting like it isn't happening. Thank God Trump is.
1: Well, it's I, weird, man.
0: Oh yeah, it's really I, weird. There's no purge of conservatives. I don't know. There's no, <laughs> no shadow banning. Who, who is this guy? Are you, are you are concerned about
1: bias in social media? Yeah, who's this huh? guy? We deplore that. Are you concer- concerned about bias in social media?
0: Well, so he, I think the bigger bias is against freedom of expression.
1: Everybody should be. There's a. There's a. Look, I, it's I support here. going it's after. Happening here, but you say like, I don't exist. Is that a heckler or a depressing yeah. gaggle? Look at this guy. The, He's
0: saying that I don't exist. and they're I just don't know who me. you are, man. They, I don't yeah, read all your sure, sure. websites. Sure, And they demonized so let me, me in these well, very can, hearings. I, the first time I ever heard about Alex Jones was when he was on the Piers Morgan show at the height of when Piers Morgan was doing his anti-gun thing. This was right after Sandy Hook.
1: Yeah.
0: And by the way, I, I like... Piers Morgan even less than Alex Jones, but <laughs> nevertheless, I remember uh, Piers Morgan, I guess, was looking for an easy win that night, and Alex Jones was organizing some petition to have Piers Morgan deported, which maybe I should have signed, I don't know. <laughs> but anyway, he, he had uh, Alex Jones on, and he said, so, uh, why is it you want to deport me? And then Alex Jones just started ranting and raving and ranting and raving and ranting and raving, and I remember seeing that and thinking, oh, God, why... Do we really have to waste our time with this? This What, what, fucking I, what I remember idiot. about
1: that was that it sort of went viral, like in my social media orbit, because people thought like, watch Piers Morgan just absolutely shut down this lunatic with 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 cold logic. But
0: he he didn't. All he did was, I mean, uh, you know, if you were generous, you could say he gave him enough rope to hang himself, but he didn't actually. <laughs> that Like that was the strategy he was trying to do. Just let him talk. But he didn't shut him down he just sat there and let the guy rant and rave
1: some of the best clips of jones are actually when he's out of the studio and he's heckling people like there's the marco rubio one uh there's one where like see
0: i like that marco rubio <laughs> foot, though because it's like again he's within this exactly artificial structure he's this chaotic force in this corrupt evil, ridiculous, but, but supposedly dignified. Right, structure. right. And
1: Rubio is standing there, like Marco Rubio, just the snake of snakes, like an, a completely fake stuffed suit, just a creature of like real estate and big finance and big oil and like neocon ghouls, neocon think tanks, things funded by the Koch brothers. And yet, yeah, it's it's in Congress. It's supposed to be dignified. This is the this is the people's house. And, you know, Marco Rubio is doing some bullshit, you know, shtick about like, oh, free expressions under attack or something. And yeah, Jones just keeps yelling at him. And then Marco Rubio is, I think, pretty clearly pretending that he doesn't know who Alex Jones is. It's like he would know. (laughs) He knows. Uh, And it might be from uh, the same hearings. But there's a a similar clip where uh, the CEO of Google was there to testify. And Alex Jones, there's a clip of him. Just he follows him around for like five minutes. And he's just chanting, Google is evil. Google is evil.
0: So a couple more bones I have to pick with Alex Jones are, you know, everyone everyone's... Well, un-
1: unlike this. me, you disagree with his politics. <laughs> yeah. Listen, I know that you're the liberal and I'm the conservative, but... Uh, I actually think of myself as not left or right. I'm just more of a, I'm just more of like a, a truth seeker. I'm just somebody who asks questions. Uh,
0: interesting, interesting. I, the only direction I acknowledge is forward. But th- again, this isn't an original insight, but the fact that when Donald Trump became president... You know, Alex Jones, after all his noble and heroic dissent against the George W. Bush administration, uh, just fell into line, just became a lockstep Trump supporter, presumably, I think, because he was flattered to have the president's ear. Donald Trump did give him an interview. Donald Trump, on a couple of occasions, spoke nicely about him. And it seems like that was really all it took.
1: Yeah, and also there, you know, there was an audience there for him. I mean, one that he'd kind of uh, helped, I think, shape and create and animate already. But obviously, with uh, with Trumpism, it kind of went more mainstream. And so that's the direction he moved in. I mean, I think, um, broadly speaking, I agree with that. I mean, I think that he, you know, there's a, a little bit of a kind of, um, you know, it's not quite analogous for, for reasons that I think are, are so obvious that I don't need to say them. But it's kind of similar to the way that like Jon Stewart and Stephen Colbert became, you know, as entertainers and, and as commentators, just less, I mean, they became more restrained and, and kind of more, uh, more partisan, really. And that is, I think that is what happened to Alex Jones. And of course, he was great before that.
0: <laughs> <laughs> and finally, I mean, not to bring the, the mood down or anything, but the, the Sandy Hook stuff. I mean, let's, uh, let's face it. I mean, I do think that for that, Alex Jones should basically be ostracized. I mean, it's about as low as you can get.
1: I mean, some of the clips uh, from from the trial where, you know, the, the parents of the victims are trying to talk to him and just earnestly explain what his conspiracy theories like did to their lives and the fact that they were like targeted and like, in some cases, you know, they were physically threatened and things like that. Yeah. I mean, it's it's I mean, absolutely horrifying. I mean, mourning presumably... Mourning parents
0: whose, whose children, whose like small children were massacred. I mean... Yeah,
1: I mean, know, presumably in the same way that, you know, when Donald Trump comes up in this podcast... We don't anymore (laughs) feel the need to be like... But actually, he's well, bad. Of I, course, I hope it, I hope we can take it for granted. I've been treating it uh, hitherto in this discussion as axiomatic, that we can all agree that Alex Jones is bad, that he's a malignant force in society. But but what I will but... say, though, is that when a
0: documentary comes <laughs> along where its selling point <laughs> is, let's look past, you know, the caricature. Let's look past, you know, what the media tells you. Here's the unfiltered Alex Jones, and you'll be able to m- make up your mind about him. You know, I hear that pitch. And I think, well, I'm not really all that interested in that, because like, I've seen a lot of Alex Jones, I don't need over two hours of just him talking at this point.
1: I, I again, I, I disagree. I mean, I think that the, the critical question with Alex Jones, again, taking it as 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 read, taking it as a given that Alex Jones is is bad. For me, the, the, the key question about Alex Jones. The key question provoked by uh, the existence of someone like Alex Jones is how dysfunctional does a society and a media culture and a democratic culture have to be for this to be A, credible to anybody as a source uh, of information, or B, for it not to scan as performance art or as something that's clearly uh, resembles, you know, kind of absurd entertainment more than a a news show or something like that. And I I think that uh, this documentary really captures Jones in a way that at least partly helps answer both of those questions. I mean, I, I think it really explains when you see him at these rallies and things, uh, you know, around the Stop the Steal, what uh, a certain kind of low information uh, v- voter who's like spends too much time on the internet and uh, carries certain prejudices, shall we say, uh, what they would find uh, appealing about this?
0: Well, something that I found useful about this documentary is many people have wondered, is this an act? Is this performance art? Certainly, I've wondered it, um, especially after Trump came into office, and he kind of fell lockstep behind him. He can help wondering, well, is this disingenuous in some way? I think this documentary pretty much settles it in my mind that no, he is, he really is who he appears to be, and also that there's not a lot there. Like, he's somebody who at an early age kind of got very interested in conspiracy theories uh, got the sense that well there's there's something going on these elites aren't working for us but he never really developed any real political explanation for that right
1: so again that is uh, i think that is a critical point and it's one of the reasons why he's able to stay on microphone for hours at a time 6 days a week Year after year after year. Uh, It's the fact that what he says is broad enough that it can just kind of be ambiently applied to pretty much any news story, anything he's got in front of him. Uh, But it's specific and and precise, sounding enough that it appears to be offering people real insight or or kind of uh, revelations about the world around them. And actually, what it reminds me of the most is the incredibly sort of uh, loose or, or I guess, one note uh, theology that you associate with like evangelical megachurches, right? Where what What are those sermons? Like those megachurch guys, like they're not system builders. They're not telling you the doctrine. They're not there to interpret the doctrine for you uh, in any kind of systematic way. Uh, The sermons are are so boring. It's always just these kind of, uh, you know, inspirational platitudes that tell you like word of God is right there in front of you and you can just reach out and, and grab it. Just give yourself over to the Lord, folks. He loves you. And then they all get whipped up into a frenzy and start, you know, speaking in tongues and stuff like that. And so it's very emotionally potent, but there are no ideas, there's no there's no system. And I think that's exactly uh, the, the epistemology that I associate with Alex Jones, and I think it's what's made him so successful. It's, it's incredible broadness, but with this type of uh, emotional potency that he can just bring to bear on, you know, really any news story. In that sense, he's also just drawing from small C conspiracy culture, let's say. I mean, fundamentally, uh, I mean, we haven't really done a conspiracy documentary on the show for a while, at least not that I can remember. I I think way back... Uh, In the day we did that uh, 9 11 one, right? Loose change, whatever that one was called. Conspiracy culture very much has the same, uh, if you want, epistemological structure to be verbose about it. I mean, it contends to explain everything in a way that is very averse to kind of specifics and evidence, but also, you know, because it has to explain everything, it also has to be uh, incredibly broad. And that's why, you know, you watch someone like Jones or you watch a lot of big conspiracy theorists or you read them and, you know, they kind of oscillate wildly between like the one big, you know, the one big thing, the one big source of uh, repression and evil, right? It's it's Agenda 21 and the United Nations. It's the Bilderberg Group. It's the, you know, satanic cabal of pedophiles and, and you know, and Democrats that come out of the Bilderberg Group, whatever. There's always kind of one big thing. I think part of my interest in all of this, one of the reasons anyway, why I find it more interesting than, than you do, I told the story way back on the show, but it's worth telling again. I mean, I knew a guy. I don't know, 15 years ago now uh, in a a kitchen I worked at who was just like a straight up conspiracy theory guy. This was kind of his big hobby. He spent a ton of time on the internet, you know, and that was kind of like one of the main things he would talk about. It didn't matter that often the conspiracies seemed to contradict one another. You know, he would get down into these rabbit holes, these little niches. And I guess like there was a certain uh, cover in the sort of, I'm just asking questions. I'm just a truth seeker kind of guy. Uh, But he unironically liked Alex Jones. I seem to I seem to recall, like, running into him around the time of Glenn Beck's rise as well, and his reading of Glenn Beck was that he was, like, almost awake, but wasn't, you know, quite there yet. It's
0: funny, a lot of these conspiracy
1: guys are both, like, more invested and less invested in it
0: than they should be. They'll spend a lot of time on it, they'll spend a lot of time, like, following <laughs> the threads, but then at the end of the day, like... You know, if you if you challenge them, they'll say, oh, well, you know, I'm I'm just asking. It's 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 interesting when you think about it. It's just interesting to be questioning, like where at a certain point, where's the actual righteous indignation if you actually do think. The global pedophile elite is in charge of all this stuff.
1: Well, again, see that's true of uh, the the type of conspiracy culture. I think this guy was partaking in, uh, but it is absolutely not true of the a lot of the people who listen to Alex uh, Jones well, and that, got and got invested in yeah. Donald Trump and got in, invested in, fairness, in QAnon. These
0: people did, uh, you know, uh, break into the Capitol. <laughs> well, right,
1: and or you know, you get something like PizzaGate, which is sort of the proto QAnon, like completely absurd, like hilarious, you know, conspiracy theory, not a shred of evidence. for for it And then, like, a few months later, a guy drives by and starts, like, shooting at the window of the pizzeria with a rifle, you know, because he, he thinks it's serious. So when this is fused with right-wing politics, it can have, you know, very real and, and very sinister consequences. But just, just one more point on the conversations I used to have with this guy, who, incidentally, I think the last time I saw him was... Um, and you know, I don't know what he's up to these days. Maybe he's maybe he's moved on from this. But I feel there was like um, in Toronto the, the G20 summit uh, back in uh, twenty ten. And, you know, it was absolutely terrifying. They locked down, uh, you know, downtown Toronto. I mean, there was basically like a military occupation of downtown Toronto for a few days. It was totally terrifying. And I just remember being, uh, you know, walking around on kind of the, the you know, the frontier, the the, the checkpoint uh, where, where you couldn't go past because there was just like stormtroopers and riot shields and gas masks and 50 of them to every one like actual protester that was there. And I remember like bumping into the sky and him giving me this kind of like knowing nod where it's like, ah, you see, I was right all along. Now you see the evidence of, you know, the the globalist plot laid out in front of you. But, you know, anytime I tried to argue with this guy, like he would come with some, uh, you know, statistic or fact that he'd found, like in a newspaper, uh, a, a lot of conspiracy culture, I was very amused to learn, just cites mainstream newspapers, like they'll cite a fact or an anecdote or something. But then because the approach is very much a pastiche one, like you can kind of just put uh, whatever that is in service of, of anything. Initially, because he would sometimes do that, he'd be like, well, what about this thing in the National Post about like the North American Union or something. I'd be like, okay, well, first of all, if you're reading about something in the National Post, it's not a conspiracy theory. <laughs> like, like if you're reading about the National Post, like the elites are just like dabbing in front of you. They don't, they're not trying to hide it. The same applies to all the shit around like Davos and the World Economic Forum. It's like Alex Jones will do these endless like rants about you know their their stated objectives or whatever, about you know how I don't know, they want to reduce carbon emissions, and they so they're they have a secret plan to destroy the global economy. And it's like it's right there in a report that you're reading on lie and they're they're getting together in, in a well publicized event they're not trying to hide it anyway but this guy would come to me with these bits of evidence and i'd be like okay well what about this thing in a different newspaper that contradicts it and for him because again conspiracy theories have to explain everything that that had the exact opposite effect that i was uh, intending because it just widened the conspiracy it was like oh well that's because they're trying to like mislead you they're trying to like dangle you know other stuff in front of you you know, absolutely everything uh, apart from like a cluster of, you know, YouTube shows or whatever is is caught up in this. Don't you understand? So I think maybe that uh, personal experience, you know, these encounters with someone who was very earnestly drawn to conspiracy culture and for whom like this was uh, political engagement and who I tried in vain to kind of, you know, talk to about it for, you know, around a year and didn't really get anywhere. I think uh, that makes me uh, more interested in someone like Alex Jones.
0: I wouldn't say I'm not interested in that side of Alex Jones. It's interesting to hear him in this documentary repeatedly say things that are kind of like halfway towards the mark of something I would agree with. You know, like if he says that, you know, we're being run by this this global pedophile elite that, you know, <laughs> wants to bend us to their will, you know, that there are times when he's 30% of the way from the Ned Beatty speech and network. <laughs> um <laughs> But, you know, he's never going to say the problem is capitalism. You know, the problem is right in front of you. The problem is exactly what it looks like. And, you know, obviously, he he became a lot less interesting, as I said, when Trump became president, because Trump was somebody who was engaging in all of this, you know, global pedophile elite behavior that. uh, that... Yeah, you you
1: liked it when you liked it uh, when that was like the indie thing, when that was underground. (laughs) Yeah. Like Trumpism gentrified Alex Jones.
0: Yeah, I mean, it, it actually did. Throughout the documentary, you see that he's kind of just this, like, free form, you know, everything's a conspiracy. The, the one guiding ethos he had was trust nothing. If the government says something, don't trust it. So when 9 11 happened, the day that 9 11 happened, he was saying, This is an inside job. This is clearly an inside job. We hear him. Uh, doing a broadcast on the phone with his good friend Joe Rogan. Joe trying to be the voice of reason. <laughs> yeah, Rogan is the
1: voice of reason. Yeah.
0: <laughs> Joe saying like, "Well, come on, Alex. You're saying that other countries don't hate us. You're saying so- <laughs> that there wouldn't be any reason for somebody to attack us." He's saying, "No, no, no. This is just like this is just like crystal knocked. This is just like." <laughs> and then, and so then, when he starts on his Sandy Hook false flag. Bullshit. That then appears to be part of this lineage of just anything that the government says, anything that is as it appears to be, and that well, you any know, cru- any any any
1: official narrative is is yeah. like and w- and
0: one that crucially you know the liberals are going to use to their advantage. That narrative cannot be trusted, and I feel like at two hours and ten minutes or however long this documentary was, it felt like an awful lot of time to be in the head of an empty-headed man, a man who is a verbal stylist. You know, a guy who is very good at talking, but not very good at saying anything, not very good at thinking. And then I feel like, you know, I'm, I'm skeptical of this documentary because it feels to me like one of the implicit theses of it is, listen, uh, you may not agree with what this man has to say, but uh, he is a free thinker and he does say uh, all this crazy stuff, maybe some of which is true. And uh, if you want to have free society, uh, if you want to have an omelet, you got to break a few eggs and maybe lay off alex jones a little bit i feel like that's kind of what the movie wants to say and i feel like alex jones doesn't really like you don't gotta hand it to him you know
1: well i'd certainly be in the you don't gotta hand it to him camp but i don't know i don't know if i agree that that's the thesis of the movie i think if you put a camera in front of alex jones uh, for any length of time you're going to see what we see in this movie I...
0: but even just the the kind of a coy opening disclaimer where it says you're about to hear views that you disagree with. <laughs> yeah, I, I agree, the, I agree on the that. Sake yeah. of, for the sake of free discussion, open <laughs> your mind to to listen to views that might upset you. I mean, I I saw that and I feel like I never entirely recovered from that disclaimer where it's like, oh, what you think? It, you think uh, you know I'm going to be so triggered by what Alex Jones is saying that I'm just going to sh- turn the movie off. It, it is anger?
1: a little bit like uh, that disclaimer that. That, that that statement that appears at the end of the second Borat movie where, you know, you've laughed, you've had a good time. And then it's like, folks, don't forget to vote in November. <laughs>
0: but like when the Sandy Hook stuff comes around in this movie, I think what the movie is ultimately saying is, yeah, he went too far here. But but look, you know, at the end of the day, he says a lot of things. He says a lot of things that maybe you should be hearing. And Uh, he says a lot of things that maybe we should even be thinking about if if you're just willing to give him a chance to talk and if you can't take him at his worst you're not allowed to have him at his best
1: well if if that if uh, that is the thesis of the movie then I obviously I disagree with it that's that's not really how it watched for me at all
0: I'll say though that my perception of it is being a bit clouded by the fact that I mean this this movie most of the people who have championed this movie who have been in the public eye have been um, let's just say people who I don't trust people who I don't give a lot of credit to and like we know who they are.
1: Yeah, it's it's, it's a fair point. Um, but I mean, just to go back to something you said earlier. I mean, about the I can't remember what what you know percent you gave uh, you, you afforded Alex. <laughs> oh god, Jones don't for, hold like,
0: me to those percentages. I feel like it was a, <laughs>
1: maybe suspiciously a little high, like thirty percent or something. But I agree with the spirit of what you're saying. And I would just return to the question that I asked earlier, which for me is the fundamental question that has to be asked um, about all of this, which is how dysfunctional does, does a society have to have to be, and, and a media culture have to be? for something like this to really be credible to, to anyone, and especially for it to be credible to the very large numbers of people who, uh, you know, have consumed Alex Jones's content and who take it very seriously. And I'll repeat myself again here, I've, I've definitely said a version of this on previous episodes, but I mean, I think one of the critical things to understand about conspiracy culture, I mean, even the most I- insane, heinous and lizard-brained right-wing version of it, is that often the reason that it has any appeal or, you know, seems compelling to anybody is because 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 in the abstract, there might be something true about it, something that you're not allowed to say or acknowledge, even though everybody or most people kind of knows some version of it. But then in execution, it's, you know, always just, yeah, the most lizard-brained insane thing ever. I was looking for it uh, while you were talking before, and I couldn't find it. But an example I've used a number of times to illustrate this is um, a few months ago, there was a, you know, a conspiracy poster, like somewhere in my my neighborhood. It must have been put up by the the anti-maskers during the pandemic. And it had this link. Uh, don't, by the way, don't you love that when somebody like puts a hyperlink on just like a piece of paper? Oh yeah, I'm
0: there with a with a pad and I pencil and... writing it <laughs> yeah. down. <laughs>
1: <laughs> yeah, yeah. Uh, but so there was something like that and there was a, a screen cap or a thumbnail from a YouTube video and it was like the president of the Kennedy School of Government and the quote was uh, something about like we're, we're proud to have a presence in so many cabinets all around the world and you know uh, I've inserted people you know who who you know have influence and you know we're proud to see our our ideas manifested you know in, in you know somebody like Trudeau or something like that you're referring to obviously uh, the Prime Minister of Canada Justin Trudeau and the thing about that is like again this is like I went and found the video. It's on the uh, you know official YouTube. I didn't I didn't write out the whole uh, I didn't write out the whole hyperlink. It was not hard to find because guess what? It's on the Kennedy School of Government's official YouTube channel. The thing about something like that is you know in the kind of right wing presentation of it, it's like look at this, the smoking gun. Here's the evidence that uh, you know there's kind of actually one world government that controls everything. Look at he's admitting it in this like behind the scenes setting at you know probably large lecture hall somewhere on the Har- Harvard campus that you know they. Uh, you you know, they train people. This is like a school for elites. And they and they put people into, you know, the cabinets of the world. And then they all meet at Davos to agree on a common agenda. And they're just telling you this. And it's like, the thing is, that's true in a, in a sense, just not in the sense that they mean. I mean, again, in the sense that it's not a conspiracy, and secondly, and relatedly, you know, none of the litter- lizard brain stuff that uh, they would attach to something like that is true at all. You know, like Alex Jones, for example, uh, he, had a, he had a show recently where he was talking about, you know, Agenda 21's plan to destroy the economy. And you listen to it for a few minutes and he's talking about how this goes back 30 years, 40 years, something like that. And what he's talking about is just the deindustrialization of the American Midwest. But he's talking about it as if it's like this, you know, yeah, this conspiracy theory. Not that it was a political project that, you know, people carried out to transfer wealth upward and to change, you know, the balance of power and, and wealth uh, in American society and elsewhere. What he's gesturing at, uh, at least in a segment like that, is just the political project that, you know, you might broadly call neoliberalism. But as you said, he's not going to call it that. He's not going to associate it in any kind of specific way with, you know, market forces or market ideology because, you know, he needs. Needs to be broad enough that he can also turn on a dime and just go into like right-wing frontier mythology and kind of the idioms of like petit bourgeois suburban reactionaries and that kind of stuff the self-made man and all that but so I think this is one of the uh, explanations for why uh, you know anybody finds this appealing is because so much of you know mainstream media culture you know I'm saying this not as a compliment to Alex Jones but as I think a criticism of, of mainstream media culture so much of it uh, really precludes asking fundamental questions about the society that we live in. So much of official political culture does the same. You're allowed to complain, but only within very specified limits. So, you know, the outer edge of uh, anti-imperialism in the Democratic Party, say, is uh, you're allowed to say, well, we should cut a little bit from the increase in the Pentagon budget so that we can spend a little more on health care and education or something. You can't. You can't really say, well, actually, there's an entire state that operates externally from any kind of democratic control. And we really don't have a lot of say over this and you know the leadership of both political parties is uh basically entirely on board with it you can't say that or uh you know take something that uh maybe is a little more closely associated with like jones's shtick jeffrey epstein right when jeffrey epstein killed himself right when
0: luke is doing air
1: quotes <laughs> I mean, we know that that's not what happened, you know, or uh, I was watching uh, the Hulu documentary last night about uh, Les Wexner and Jeffrey Epstein. Like there was this other guy in the Hulu documentary who hadn't heard of who's like this French modeling agent who knew Epstein. And he just like met the exact same kind of death that Epstein did like a few weeks later or something. And so I don't know, you can like, I don't know, roll your eyes on Twitter about it or something. But fundamentally, this kind of thing is not going to be interrogated in any sort of systematic way. The, the, The Official story is that you know Jeffrey Epstein killed himself or whatever. And so that leaves, you know, guys like Alex Jones to rant about Bohemian Grove and Eyes Wide Shut parties and stuff like that. It's acknowledged in like a strictly factual sense, uh, you know, whatever it was, New York magazine or whoever published that long list of you know all the people mentioned in the flight logs. But you know, uh, when when the Epstein documentary uh you know aired on Netflix, you know, anytime Bill Clinton comes up, there's a thing on the screen that's like, there is no evidence that Bill Clinton was involved in X, Y or Z, or, you know, except for his
0: name being on the flight logs <laughs> all the time. <laughs> yeah.
1: And I think just to finish the point, I mean, something else I would say about that is that I think, you know, in the last few years as well, because of the whole you know, as part of the sort of wider panic about fake news and misinformation and things like that. And, and you know, the the argument that or the belief that some people have that essentially people's posts on Facebook is what lost Hillary Clinton in the 2016 election. That's the only way you can explain it. Posts of a muscly Bernie Sanders that were amplified by Russian bots a week after the election is why uh, is why Hillary lost. But in the wider context of all of that, I mean, I do think there's been a bit of a, a sort of doubling down on a pretty unhealthy impulse where, you know, the, the enterprise of fact-checking and validating things, which is obviously a, a constructive and worthy and, and healthy one, in some cases has sort of bled over into just like, the only correct and patriotic thing about X, Y, or Z event is for you to believe this official narrative. And if you have any problem with it, you have been unwittingly co-opted uh, or perhaps wittingly co-opted by uh, a foreign power or misinformation or whatever it is. I mean, I I don't I don't know if they've actually done it. But uh, when the Biden administration around the time it was sworn in, there was uh, there were discussions about creating like a truth czar or something like that. And so you know, that kind of thing, the idea of like, you're going to create a truth, truth czar, and that's going to be the antidote to QAnon. That's not going to like increase the (laughs) membership of QAnon tenfold if the federal government creates (laughs) something called like, the secretariat of truth or something (laughs) (laughs)
0: Yeah, the word Orwellian gets overused, (laughs) but...
1: (laughs) But so again, you know, I think that when there's such a doubling down on official narratives and the idea that in some cases, it's actually sort of unpatriotic and bad to dissent from them, you know, that that kind of thing is what helps create a constituency for someone like Alex Jones. I think the other thing which really uh, came across in this documentary when when he's uh, speaking at all of these kind of stop the steal rallies, and you see him talk and you see lots of other people who are on stage with him. There's a, a kind of sequence I hadn't seen before where uh, I guess they went into the Georgia state house house or something like that. And it's pretty funny if you know what happened a few weeks later because you know he's talking they're all talking about how we're not anti we're here to be peaceful, we're going to, you know, we're just going to make our point, etc. But all of the, you know, all of the rhetoric is this kind of rhetoric of like we're this silent majority and they're, you know, they're stealing the election. They want to keep the elites in power. You know, it's it's it's, you know, small p populist. I mean, obviously all the stuff about the election being stolen is is made up. And obviously the the motivations of these people are, you know, reactionary. But it's like, if you know anything about liberals, you know, anything about the Democratic Party, uh, where, you know, again, it, you know, since 2016, it's not so much that they're non-populist, it's that they're anti-populist. And obviously, that goes back before 2016 as well. But, you know, since 2016, because of the sort of uh, parallel rises of uh, Bernie Sanders on uh, one side and Donald Trump on the other, and kind of analogous things that happened in other countries, there was a doubling down on the belief that what's happening now isn't because, you know, we live in a Deeply unequal and kind of in many respects post-democratic society. The problem is actually that society is too democratic, and we have to actually crack down on this. And Donald Trump is a, a manifestation of that. And you know what? So is people who want you know not to have a, a million dollars of debt when they graduate from college, or you know they they don't want like their uh, grandparent to die because they can't afford to go to the doctor. Those are morally and politically the same things. The populist energy ends up being you know sucked into the right in a in a large part because you know the American. American. American political class, you know, however you look at it, if you look at congressional approval ratings, which are always incredibly low, uh, if you look at uh, the Biden administration, if you look at the Trump administration, if you look at many of the major institutions in American life, the party leaderships, if you ask people, you know, do you think Wall Street is a, you know, positive good in in our society, there is an ambient sense that all of this stuff is bad. I think that applies even in, uh, you know, the U.S. military probably has more cross-partisan legitimacy, but the Pentagon and the military industrial complex, probably less so. Again, by, you know, 2008, with the rise of Obama, you know, sort of a, an ambient sort of anti-war thing was, uh, was bipartisan, in a sense. And when there's so much discontent, uh, and when there's so much unhappiness, and when there's so much inequality, and when the side of politics that's officially the side that's about compassionate reform and majority rule and defending democracy, and, you know, wants us to think anyway, that it's associated with, like, ideas about economic fairness, maybe even, uh, redistribution, that it's, uh, you know, that it's in favor of meritocracy. I'll tell you what I was thinking about when uh, in the sequence uh, where Alex Jones and his uh, compatriots are in the Georgia uh, statehouse. I thought back to, I guess, circa, I think it would have been 2010, What happened in Wisconsin, where uh, Scott Walker, the, uh, you know, puppet of the Koch brothers, uh, essentially, decided to wage a war on public sector unions, very specifically left out unions that he thought, like the firefighters, who he thought were going to be, you know, sympathetic. It was, you know, going after teachers unions and and civil servants and things like that. Absolutely heinous uh, right to work law people did not sit down and take it. You know, Wisconsin has a very rich radical history, union culture, uh, you know, going back more than 100 years, partly rooted in the American socialist tradition as well. And what did what did people do? Uh, They got together and they occupied the statehouse. They said, we're not going to sit down and take this. What did the Obama administration do? Well, on the evening of uh, the recall election that the unions and elements of the local Democratic Party had managed to get where they were trying to recall, I think they were trying to recall Walker himself, but they were also... Also trying to recall uh, various Republican state senators so they would have enough votes to overturn the law. The Obama administration, which had sat uh, on its hands the entire time, put out a statement, and said, uh, this is a state level matter. And, you know, it's, it's really, uh, it's none of our business. It's up for the people of Wisconsin to decide. So, I mean, I guess, you know, that contrast between the Georgia State House in, you know, 2020 and, uh, you know, the Wisconsin one is somewhat arbitrary. You know, that's just what appeared in my head. But I was thinking about State House occupations. And I do think anecdotally, at least, you can see a pretty clear contrast there uh, in terms of how, you know, both of them have a kind of populist energy uh, about them, the rhetoric that uh, is associated with them is a populist one. I mean, one that happens to be for good and the other is for pure evil, which I suppose is an important distinction. But in the case of what Alex Jones was doing, that was, you know, practically kind of uh, mainstream within the context of big R republicanism at the time. And in the other example, I gave, you know, the Democratic Party uh, sat on its hand, Because, you know, it doesn't want to think in those terms. It doesn't want to think in populist terms about, you know, the balance of power and, you know, wouldn't even do that to uh, help save uh, one of its key constituencies in a state that then, of course, Hillary Clinton went on to lose to Donald Trump in 2016. So that, to me, is what uh, you know this movie uh, you know helps explain, or at least kind of uh, details. I won't say it's a missing piece or anything like that. I don't think I learned anything new about Alex Jones, but I think unlike you, I found it quite interesting and it uh, had a certain amount to say. Uh, about, you know, that fundamental question that why does anybody find this credible? And what does it say about, you know, the the culture that this originates from, uh, in terms of its, you know, health and how well it functions? Well, I
0: I definitely agree that that's why Alex Jones is interesting. I don't think you'll find a lot of that in this movie. (laughs) I think actually what you'll find in this movie is a lot of just Alex Jones talking. I think that's a lot of stuff that we can project onto it if we have that information. But I, I don't want to give the movie credit for doing that heavy lifting. I mean, you should have made the Alex Jones movie because I think it would have been better.
1: Well, maybe it can be an occasion for me to uh, write an article uh, about it when I'm back at Jacobin because I've actually never written an Alex Jones article and I've wanted to do so for quite a long time. <laughs> Broken feeling,
0: Like their father or the dog just died Everybody talking to their pockets. Everybody wants a box of chocolates in the long stem room. Because everybody, everybody knows. knows. Everybody knows. Everybody knows that you love me, baby. Everybody knows that you really do. Except a time or two. I give or take a night or two. Everybody knows you've been discreet, but there were so many people you just had to meet. Without your your clothes, clothes. Everybody 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 knows. Everybody knows.
1: Everybody knows.
0: Everybody knows.
1: Everybody knows.
0: Everybody knows. That's how it goes. Because everybody knows. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. Everybody knows. the country.